Welcome in to 20th and Blake here on the Mile High Sports Podcast Network. I am your host, Drew Kreisman, and as always, I'm excited to be talking some Colorado Rockies baseball with you here on the show. And I wanted to take a step back and do something here as we've got really just a couple of weeks before the season ends. And at that point, I'm going to have a lot of, well, end of season content for you. There's a lot of things that I think are good takeaways to have about the year and a lot of stuff that I'm preparing, but it's nice to have those statistics finalized. I don't want to have to do a lot of like with a week and a half remaining, assume, you know, a guy's wins above replacement might change usually not that much, but rather than giving all of those caveats, let's just do that at the end of the year. I'm not going to bore you all with any more 100 loss conversation or any of that. So what I thought I would do today is actually take a step back and prepare us for even further philosophical, forward-thinking conversation, right? Because we're moving into the offseason, then that's where you typically go anyway, even after a successful season, which obviously the Rockies have not had for a couple of years now, right? And so I thought it would be good to go back and unpack something that I wrote a little while ago and always intended to dive into deeper on a podcast, but for several reasons, was never really able to do so. And as I was looking over these notes, some of which I have updated over the last several years, I thought I would go through each of these, what I at one point was calling the top 10 false narratives surrounding the Colorado Rockies, to talk about each one of these things and where I think it's maybe evolved, changed, how the Rockies have done better or worse at each of these things, there's also something that I need to note up front every time I have a, a conversation like this. Well, well, two things. The, the first is that almost all of these false narratives come out of something that is true, right? At the heart, maybe, maybe not, not at the heart of them, but at the beginning, there's almost always something bad or, or off or whatever that the Rockies did to start the narrative themselves. Almost always, right? And the second thing is that Taking a, a moment, having a conversation where we say, here are just the things that in general folks are getting wrong about the team, which makes it difficult to have the conversation about who are they really, how do they get better, and so on. Doing all of that does not mean that you are dismissing or hand-waving away all of the team's things that the team, excuse me, legitimately does terribly. This is just not that conversation. Uh, one of my favorite tweets of all time, maybe the greatest tweet of all time, about how you know Twitter is the only place where sometimes you can put a perfectly articulated statement out there into the world like, I love waffles, and somebody will take it as, why do you hate pancakes, right? The only thing that's wrong about that tweet is that Twitter is not the only place where that happens. It happens in real life and on podcasts, and unfortunately, it happens a lot, right? But what we're doing today is just focusing in, and this is going to have to be a two-part conversation. I'm going to do 10 through 6 on my list and talk about how the Rockies are doing with these, where they've come from, where people are off, and what we need to be focused on as the Rockies move forward. All right, at number 10, the Rockies as loyalists who lean on their veterans too much. This is something that we've looked at a lot throughout the season, right? Now, I've had a tendency to point out that I'm sure guys like Nolan Arenado and Troy Tulowitzki don't think that the Colorado Rockies are so super loyal, right? They're loyal right up until the point that they aren't anymore. One of the things that I find funny about this conversation as well is that there are 
maybe not as many people, but also a lot more people. Like I hear this more when I go out to the Western Slope or when I talk to, frankly, more casual fans too, where they are of the belief that the Rockies trade away their good players far too often, focusing in on things like uh, Nolan Arenado or thinking back to Larry Walker and, and Troy Tulowitzki or so on, right? And so there is this weird kind of pull of, are the Rockies more loyal than they need to be? Do they hang on to players longer than they should? Uh, and are they overly reliant, I suppose, on veterans? Now, we all know that they lean that way, right? And we've seen it throughout the years. Of course, there are counterexamples to this, just as there were back in the day. Like I remember during the 17 and 18 days when the counterexample was David Dahl, the second he got to the bigs, he was an everyday player when he was healthy. The same thing with Trevor Story. He was an everyday player from day one and most of that starting pitching rotation. Armand Marquez, Kyle Freeland, John Gray, Antonio Sensatella. Right, a lot of that conversation back then was about Ian Desmond and an aging Carlos Gonzalez getting playing time over guys like Ryan McMahon and Ryan Altapia. Uh, who were a bit more young and exciting. And though it's not worked out super well for Tapia over the years, you know, it's it's hard not to wonder if they'd have played McMahon a bit more. We're seeing a similar dynamic now where you can look at this season and say, yeah, maybe they should never have signed Jerks and Profar in the first place. And they held on to Crone a little longer than they should have. And they should have traded even more veteran relievers, like Brent Suter, for example. But they've also had the player who at any given time, has been the youngest player in baseball for the vast majority of the season, at worst second or third place, because certain guys have obviously come up and, and got sent down. But Ezekiel Tovar has just been your everyday shortstop, day one, no questions asked. And he's played almost every single baseball game, like only a handful of off days over the year, over the year, excuse me, for a guy who's the first time playing a 162-game season. And so, obviously, they've committed to Brenton Doyle. They've committed to Nolan Jones. Now, Nolan Jones was easy to commit to once he really started raking, and he's just destroyed. Like, you have to play a guy who's producing that much for you. But there have been plenty of opportunities for them to look at Brenton Doyle's awful offensive statistics and say, we're not going to play this guy in center field anymore. We do have other players, veterans that we signed, and guys they'd be more comfortable with, but they didn't. They never took him out of there once they committed to that. Less so with the Lowry's Montero. Though they have now, right? Been frustrating throughout the season. And then obviously you look at the trade deadline. So this is something that I think has always been, like I said at the beginning, there's, there's always been some truth to this. I think it's just a little bit overblown. It's never been the case that the Rockies will purposefully bury a good young player just because they like a mediocre veteran. I know it feels like that's happening sometimes when they keep running out somebody like Jerks and Profar, but... Whenever there's a counterexample, especially when there's more than one counterexample, you say, well, okay, this clearly isn't a fast and hard policy, right? Otherwise, Tovar never would have been your opening day shortstop to ending day shortstop, right? They never would have committed to Brenton Doyle the way that they have. So has some of this changed under Bill Schmidt? I think so. I think they've loosened up on this more and more. I think some of that is also just recognizing the time of the window that they're in. That yes, even though I think they wanted to kind of try to hang on to it there for a little while, that last era is over. And they're not going to be able to build around ostensibly what that was. 
you know, they're, they're even if you get back the very best of Marquez, Freeland, and Sensatella, the rotation needs reworking. But you've got this great work, uh, this great group, excuse me, of position players coming up. And they have committed to them. And the trades of guys like Krohn and Gritchick and, yeah, a lot of the veteran relievers, I think are proof of that. There's still room to grow in this particular area. But again, I think the Rockies have shown that they are not overly loyalist on every single occasion, no matter what. And you can't use it to explain, you know, every single thing that they do. There's also sort of an irony now that one of the guys for whom this seemed to be true of, you know, like I mentioned earlier, not being able to get the playing time because the Rockies were being loyal to guys like Cargo and Desmond was Ryan McMahon who is now starting to move into that veteran stage of his career. He's one of only two players on the team uh, alongside with Kyle Freeland. Well, uh, Chris Bryant is a whole other category of thing, but right, he and, and Kyle Freeland are the guys who are just kind of signed long-term for reasonable money, basically for what they're worth. And so it'll be interesting to see if people start making the argument that he's blocking younger players. And I've already seen several people suggest that the Rockies should trade him. You know, so... Uh, that that's kind of an interesting one. Are they going to be now loyal to uh, McMahon? But again, something that I think has just sort of been overblown over the years, uh, but it has been nice to see the Rockies move more and more in the direction of trusting younger players. And I think in particular, also Bud Black moving in the direction of trusting younger players. All right, here's another one that continues to be fascinating to me. Rockies players getting better after they leave. This has always been a a bit of a strange catch-22 to me because on the one hand, if every single player, if every single player that leaves your franchise gets better, there's only two possible conclusions to reach. Either there's something about wearing the uniform that saps you of your ability to play baseball, that they're so fundamentally incapable of playing baseball out here that it's a miracle they ever win any games, or that there's something going on that makes it harder. And I think it's been proven over the years, I think most everyone listening to this knows, that whether you're a position player or a pitcher, When you're a member of the Colorado Rockies, you have a unique set of challenges to deal with. Whether it's pitchers dealing with the chaos of Coors Field and how much the ball moves and the big outfield, or how differently their pitch comes out of their hand at home versus on the road. Everything that's true of, obviously we've talked about the hangover effect over the years and the fact that hitters have such a dramatically difficult time getting hits on the road for this franchise, no matter how good they are, unless their names are Larry Walker or Todd Helton, they just don't hit on the road. And even those guys have pretty dramatic splits. They just hit way better at home, right? They still, their road numbers are pretty good. Now, of course, there are a lot of counterexamples to this. Uh, I've, I've seen recently a, a name back in the news. He just swung through the ballpark last week. Mike Talkman was back in town. And he's having a nice little year for the Cubs. But he's also been essentially a league average player for the vast majority of his career. And he's somebody that the Rockies were heavily criticized for when they got rid of him. And he went to the Yankees and he had two good months. And after those two good months, he, like I said, league average player for four years. Now he's having a good year this year with with the Cubs. 
He's back. I've given my DJ LeMayhew speech plenty of times before, and maybe that's another thing we can dive into again some other time. But an overwhelming number of numbers show that a number of numbers show that he was the same hitter, just getting different results. And now he's just not doing any of that at all. And while he's getting older, yes, he's certainly not so old that his production should have tanked by that much. Again, if this theory held true. And normally the way that it's expressed, right, is that when somebody goes somewhere else, the coaching staff on that team gets a ton of credit. And in a kind of side comment, the Rockies coaching staff or the way things are done here is given a slight. That was done in a big way with DJ LeMayhew. Less so when guys are more superstar players like Nolan Arenado, right? No no one's going to claim. when. But when you look at his numbers, the same thing is true where his highest wins above replacement of his career came in St. Louis because it's harder to put up wins above replacement in Colorado. It's harder to hit on the road. There's all these things that tend to get ignored when the guys are here. And then when they go elsewhere, they tend to get give the credit to those coaching staffs and use it to slight the Rockies rather than to recognize, man, that sure is some uphill battle. You guys have got to climb out there. But the fact of the matter is there are plenty of counterexamples, examples in both directions. There are plenty of guys who have done worse after leaving, more older pitchers, Wade Davis, Brian Shaw. But the norm from Matt Holliday and Chris Iannetta and Dexter Fowler to, to Nolan Arnold, this is actually something that's been proven now over the years over and over and over again. And we saw it again this season with guys like Carlos Estevez. And again, people taking away the wrong message, which is that, oh man, the Angels coaching staff, yeah, the genius is over at the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim, California, unlocked the true potential of Carlos Estevez. No, man. He just went from a place where altitude is absolutely brutal on your body, something to talk about more later. Your pitches move differently. Your adjustments have to be more extreme. And any mistake that you do make in that ballpark is going to fly farther and land in a potentially larger outfield or go over the wall. And rather than adjust for that or give guys a little more credit, even for individualistic awards, and it's never made sense to me that people will use the general anti-Rockies bias to hold against individual Rockies players. Again, if anything, that should show you that they're overcoming even more. Todd Helton should have been a first-round, first-ballot Hall of Famer. You know what I mean? All right, a couple more to get to. Rockies fans... This is one that always interests me, and it again has been something this year. And I've, uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say one statement at the top of this. I'm gonna move into the rest of this, but I have noticed that a lot of the people calling out transplants at Coors Field are themselves transplants at Coors Field. Just something worth noting from a Colorado native. Not that I care, because frankly. Rockies fans of all stripes, including and maybe arguably especially the transplants, get a bad rap. This is one of those weird, I don't I don't feel how you get slapped around on both sides of this. I know a lot of people, again, a lot of people who will make these same arguments about how terrible Coors Field is, but they happen to be Cubs fans. 
because their parents are from Chicago. Maybe they themselves were born in Chicago. Their family had a team before 1993. It happened to be the Cubs. The Cubs were on TV. This is true. I know a lot of people. This is true of Atlanta. That's very common around here. I grew up watching Atlanta more than Colorado. They were on TV all the time. Right? A similar reason to why my mom, growing up in Oklahoma, was a huge Yankees fan. They were on the radio. They were on TV. And so a lot of people around here, and and baseball especially is a sport that's oftentimes passed down from generation to generation, from father to son, from mother to daughter. And in doing so, you tend to inherit an old team, but a lot of people have two baseball teams they root for because, quite frankly, it's a brutal-ass sport. (laughs) It's hard to win. It's hard to be good, so you might as well double up your chances of maybe having a good season. Those people root for the Rockies when they're good. Maybe not against the Cubs or the Cardinals or Atlanta, whoever their number one team is. A lot of Dodgers fans around here. But every Dodgers fan I know, and I know a lot of Dodgers fans who live in Denver. I talk to them out there all the time. They love the Rockies. They want the Rockies to be good. They want the Rockies to be great. They don't necessarily want them to beat the Dodgers, but they'd love for that to be a good rivalry and they want the team to be good because they like going to see good baseball and they'll go and watch them play against the Padres and the Giants and whoever else and they'll wear their Rockies jerseys if they're not playing the Dodgers transplants get a terrible rap at Coors Field because almost all of them their second favorite team is the Rockies they'll root for them and if their own team is out of it they'll root for the Rockies over their own team because the Rockies are now their adopted hometown team, the, the Where I Live ball club. And they love going out to the park because it's a great park, which is another thing to talk about later. And all that stuff, too. So I, I think, yeah, the visuals of, you know, being there and there's more Cubs fans there. Look, the Rockies are bad this year. That's what you get. This is another rant for another time, and I've I've done parts of it here and there. But in other cities, when the teams are bad, the ballparks are just empty. They're not full of, full of the other team's fans. They're not full of any fans. They're just empty. It's just a horrible atmosphere to play baseball in. And one of the things I think Bud Black talked about very earnestly with these series against the Cubs and the Giants, these teams that are in it, and their fans are there, and their fans are really into the game. It's adding energy, and it's adding, it's great for these young players. Games that matter. A hot crowd. Blue Jays fans in here. you know, Atlanta fans chanting MVP. MVP for Ronald Acuna. But it gives those games validity and legitimacy. And I'm sorry, but it's not better in places. It's not better in Miami, where it's just empty and the weather's bad, and there's a million other better things to do across the street. You know? So, I think Rockies fans, who were Rockies fans first, get a bad rap also. Again, I, I, it's funny to me, because I think a lot of the media that blows this stuff up is also, in many ways, kind of demanding that Rockies fans do what they're doing, right? Like, they're like, why aren't so many people showing up? And I was like, fewer and fewer are. When the team gets better, it'll be more full of Rockies fans. In the meantime, it'll be full of transplants, and at least there'll be some good vibes, and at least they'll be able to make some money to spend on next year's roster, because that's all that happens. As I've talked about many times before, the 
the protests and things like that, they don't work. But to me, I think this year has been an interesting and new, unique season because there have definitely been some downtimes where you've seen the apathy out there and some pretty empty times. But you've also seen some big weekends, sometimes because they were doing fireworks or bobblehead night or whatever, but sometimes just because, yeah, the opposing fans, plus it was a great weekend and the weather was nice and people came out and there was good baseball to be played. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that, right? But I, I think we've seen in this year where they may actually finally lose 100 games that even not going, it, it's not going to change anything, right? So the crowds might as well be great. And the last one that I want to talk about today that I alluded to earlier is the altitude and its effect on the body. One thing I try to campaign for whenever I can, but it can be difficult because whenever Coors Field comes up in baseball circles, I don't say all anybody ever wants to talk about those phrases. That's such a silly thing to say. But a lot of people, most of the time, when I listen into these conversations, it tends to focus on the flight of the ball and all of the offense. Maybe a little bit of a hat tip to it being difficult to pitch there. But it's almost always couched the way it was this year with Esteva. So thank God he was able to get out of that nightmare of a situation. Right? Never like, wow, look at what he was able to do in his five or six years in that very difficult place. It's, it's n- almost never said that way, right? But to me, the effect of the altitude on the body is the biggest missing piece of the story of why the Rockies have had difficulty maintaining sustainability, particularly when it comes to pitching, right? These guys just break down. Pitchers break down across all of baseball more and more now than they used to, right? And that's a... Again, a bigger conversation for people smarter than me, probably, and books have been written, and Tommy John, and 100 pitches, and yeah, 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 you can get into all that stuff, right? But at altitude, it's even tougher for the body to recover. There's real science behind this. I don't know that there's been a ton of actual science done, particularly on the Rockies, because as my understanding of it is, you need about 14 days at and then away from altitude in order to get the benefits of, quote, training at altitude, right? There's never a homestand long enough. Their bodies are never able to acclimate. I believe I used that word correctly. (laughs) To the altitude. So they don't get the benefits of training at altitude. And their bodies tend to break down. And I don't think it's a coincidence that everyone from Troy to Lewitsky... Carlos Gonzalez, Ubaldo Jimenez. Look what's going on right now with Marquez, Sensatella. Those guys haven't been, I mean, they're younger, but they've been pitching now five, six years. You know, Freeland having a tough time staying healthy this year. Uh, There's a reason why, other than Aaron Cook and Jorge De La Rosa, you just don't have longevity among pitchers out here. And in the bullpen, it's even harder, right, to find those guys that are going to stick around for a long time. And again, that's difficult across all of baseball. But in addition to all of that, the Rockies also have arguably the most difficult travel schedule of anyone in baseball. The Seattle Mariners do actually travel more hours 
more distance, I think it is, which I assume <laughs> equates to more hours, but fewer time zones and fewer changes in altitude, right? If you're taking those things into account, the Rockies have by far the most difficult travel schedule in baseball. And in a marathon sport, those kinds of things can really wear you down over the course of a season. And you need to have an extraordinary amount of depth. This thing right here is essentially what changed my mind from, hey, it's great that the Rockies have all of these superstar players. Like, it's the one real big thing you can hang your hat on as a Rockies fan, especially if you're comparing yourself to, say, the Miami Marlins, right? Oh, they've got a couple of World Series. But other than that, like, who's the greatest Marlin of all time, right? Uh, you know, Oakland A's haven't won big in a long time. And, like, who's the greatest Oakland A of the last 25 or 30 years, right? At least with the Rockies, you can go Walker, Helton, Cargo, Tulo, Nolan, right? There's some great names there. But big names cost big money. And when you've got that much money tied up in, for example, Troy Tulowitzki and Carlos Gonzalez, you need those guys to be healthy because when they weren't, the whole baseball team fell apart. They couldn't compete. And it was similar things when certain pitchers would go down. Uh, you know, the this particular season I don't think they ever really had a shot but if you were gonna capture all the good young energy from the second half of the season transport it to the first half of the season still given the injuries to the pitching staff this club goes nowhere right so for me that's the biggest reason why you've got to spread out the value the essentially like how much we're relying on you right if It'd be nice to have an ace. And this is why, you know, a lot of people talk about this and they go, why can't the Rockies ever just go and spend $25 million a year or $35 million, $40 million a year on Garrett Cole or Max Scherzer if you're doing that. But right, the, the ace costs money. Probably the most expensive commodity in baseball is the ace. And if he happens to have a down year, he's nowhere near the value of his contract. And if he gets hurt, then you're totally screwed. And for the Rockies, the possibility of those two things is just much higher than any other team. The, the getting injured and not being able to stay healthy as much because of the altitude as everything else. And then throw on top of that Coors Field, the difficulty of pitching there, the mental wear and tear, so on and so forth. And that's why you see things like what happened with Wade Davis, right? So again, something that I think the team has to do a better job of accounting for and dealing with. You can't just throw up your hand and say, well, our guys are never going to stay healthy, but we can also continually use injuries as a basic bottom line excuse for why we didn't have the season that we wanted to, right? If you know that you're going to have a certain amount of IL stints per season, the Rockies have a very good training staff. I know it doesn't feel like one right now, but over the last several years, they've been very good at keeping guys off of the IL considering this. But I still think it, it impacts numbers, right? Even if guys are staying on the field, they're not at their absolute best. And so the Rockies, more than any other team, need depth. Depth, depth, depth. No season have the Colorado Rockies ever made it to the postseason because of the, you know, 20 guys on their roster. You need 30, 35. Used to be 40-man rosters because you could call up so many in September. But, you know, you're going to need that many guys to contribute 
over the course of a season, which is true in a lot of places. But again, the altitude just makes those elements of baseball, the chaos, the health, and the chaos and health of pitching that much more difficult. And so that's something that, you know, throughout this season, I really do think we've seen it take its toll. And I hope that they with money to spend this offseason, keep that in mind and don't go out and put all of their eggs in one basket and go, well, yeah, but if our pitching gets better, we should be able to compete as long as that pitcher stays healthy. So let's spend, you know, $17 million on this guy. And it's like, okay, that guy better be good. And because if he's not, it just goes the other way. So that's what I've got for you for now. Like I said, this is going to have to be a a two-part conversation. I knew I was going to have a lot to say about each of these topics, and I do. So I've got more on the little narratives that follow the Colorado Rockies, how they've shifted, how they've changed, how some of them have stayed almost exactly the same, and what it is I think the team needs to do to account for them moving forward. I'll have the second half of the list for you next time. In the meantime, I can only ever ask that you continue to be absolutely awesome out there. You know that I will continue to be absolutely Drew Creaseman in here. And until next time, I will see you at the ballpark.